0: Zach, won't you come and share the word of the Lord with us? Amen. Thank you. Sweet. Well, good morning. It is good to be here. Amen. Let's get this thing opened up and ready to go. All right. So, you guys, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll start off by saying you can keep us uh, in prayer. Sean and I are actually going today, uh, we're going to go to Sykeston. Um, it, as I've mentioned before, I've been able to have the privilege of being involved with fields of faith since I was a junior in high school, many moons ago, um, I was one of the, yeah, <laughs> he's right, um, uh, I was the, uh, one of the first student testimonies that they had as a junior, um, and, uh, it was, it was, in, we even had it in a completely different area of the field, it was much smaller whenever we first started, and, uh, and, and it's, it's grown quite a bit over the, over the years, and now, um, as anything that is, that is productive and good, it's, it's multiplied. And so they've begun to have more. The first, um, Popper Bluff was the only location that had Fields of Faith when we first started. And then from there, it's since grown. Cape started having one. Uh, Sykes had added one. Donovan had added one, one of the years. Uh, they just had the, first, the very first one in Malden, Missouri a uh, couple weeks ago, and so we've seen kind of a growth of, uh, of fields of faith kind of move as as the uh, FCA, or the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, has um, really targeted to want to reach out to many of the high schools and the students who are especially within athletics, um, but not limited to athletics. And so uh, they're starting to reach different people in different areas, and it's really great to uh, to see that. So, Sean and I are going to go with, with a couple friends of ours to Sykes, Missouri, and we're going to be a part of their fields of faith that they're doing tonight. And so that's where we're going to be. So, you guys can keep us in prayer as, uh, as we minister to those students and see, uh, see God move in their lives. So, uh, if you have been here for the last couple weeks, you know that we have been in the book of 1 Timothy. It's been a, a great series, it's been a great study. I've really enjoyed being a part of it. Um, and what I want to do is, I want to kind of uh, read a couple scriptures from some of the weeks that we've already. Gone through, uh, in in chapter one we can see. Actually, let me backtrack. Uh, Timothy is a uh, he's a disciple of Paul, so he's he's been trained up, he's been equipped by Paul, and then uh, as as anyone who has grown in their faith and in their ministry and in um, their understanding, um, they start to be uh, to be given more responsibilities in different areas as as they see and feel the calling of the Lord on their lives, and so. What Paul does is Paul has a couple specific letters written to spiritual sons of his. One, we went through the book of Titus uh, very briefly and kind of went over what it meant for him to have a spiritual father uh, in Paul. So Titus was sent to the the place of Crete and Crete, where they had lots of different activities. There were multiple churches that Titus was going to have to oversee and kind of help establish and and kind of wrangle in and things like that. So Titus was a very specific book written to this guy. It was a very specific letter written to Titus. From Paul, detailing the things that he was going to have to be aware of, and kind of setting up the church and establishing leaders and things like that. And so, uh, so he had a pretty pretty massive task on his hand in order to to bring and to wrangle in all the things that were happening there. Now, to Timothy was a little bit different. Similar in a lot of the content that you see, there's some specific things that, that mirror back and forth through both of the, of the letters that Paul writes. But uh, Paul's a little more specific on a couple different areas because of the content in which he's sending, uh, the context in which he had to send Timothy. He sent him to a place called Ephesus, if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, that was written to that church as well. And so Titus was written to Timothy, the one who was going to take over in leadership at this church. And uh, and so you see that there are some pretty substantial things and some problems that are happening within this church. This church was established. So unlike, uh, unlike Titus, where he was going to have to do a lot of grunt work and groundwork on kind of forming and doing a lot of things like that for that area, um, Timothy was going to a very well-established church. And because of that, there were some things that he was going to have to deal with. Anybody know that if there's been an institution or an organization or a company around for a very long time, they probably have some traditions that you're going to have to deal with. And there were some uh, inadequate and heretical teachings that were happening in the church. And whenever we say heresy, I think it's very important that We don't give such a blanket statement over heresy. I think today there are a lot of people when they have a disagreement with somebody, they automatically will label them a heretic, and I think that is inappropriate, and that is very outside the realm of what we need to be doing. There's many denominations that we see within Christianity. Um, That doesn't mean that we are against different people. It doesn't mean that we are pushing them aside or that we feel that they are lesser. It doesn't mean that we feel that they are uh, heretical in their stuff. Heresy deals with the belief of Christ, and the definition of who Christ was. And these heretical teachings were, these people were teaching um, about false Jesus, essentially. It was, it was a false Christ. Um, giving and making room for sin. Um, manipulating people and making them feel like they were elite over different individuals. And there was a lot of hard issues that he was going to have to deal with because of this heretical teaching. And so I'm going to read just a little bit before we get into the main text. So you don't have to worry about uh, running into this first, Kevin. We'll get into your part here in, in just a moment. In chapter one, uh, verse three, he says, as I urged you when we went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. This is the overarching theme of this book that he's combating false doctrine. Okay, so not to teach any false doctrine any longer or devote themselves to myths. In endless genealogies, these myths were false stories about true individuals or believed individuals. They did this a lot with Greek gods as they would teach about these individuals and give them uh, very uh, mischievous behaviors, attach these mischievous behaviors on top of these Greek gods, giving them room to say that if they worship this specific individual or the specific god, then it meant that they were able to do these same activities that these gods were doing. So if they were acting or misbehaving inappropriately, they can say, well, my God does that. And so that's what I get to do, too. And so they are not supposed to teach these things and believe myths about Jesus Christ as they would do about Greek gods. So such things promote controversial speculation instead of advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. Everybody say "The the goal is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these things. And have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. Skipping forward a little bit more, he says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And this is so important. And talking about the false doctrine that these people were teaching, going into this part right here, he said, Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus may display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's chapter one. That's chapter one. That's kind of what we went over for that, for that first uh, section of teaching after the introduction. So it's very important that we keep this at the forefront of our minds. And I mention this every single week because it's so important for us to do this as it's easy to get distracted by uh, one individual topic within this this, uh, frame of teaching. And that's what causes people to kind of be led astray in the midst of their Bible reading is if they don't understand a theme that's happening within the full context, it's easy to pluck one scripture out and then to become oppressive with the language that we use when describing who Christ is to other people. And I think that that's not very helpful. <laughs> it's not helpful when it comes to dis- displaying who Christ really is. When he says that he came into the world to save sinners, and the goal of the command of everything that we're doing is love. Oppression is nowhere to be found in that list of things that we're supposed to be focusing on. It's that Christ came to save sinners. And the goal of the command for what we're supposed to be doing is love. So, chapter 2. <laughs> chapter 2, he goes into the worship Atmosphere into what they're supposed, how they're supposed to be conducting themselves within the church, the body of Christ. And he says a few things here. He says, "I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. Everybody say, all people, all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth." And so this is really important for us to remember. The first thing that he says is that we're supposed to be prayerfully attentive in all that we do. First, to offer prayers, petitions, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving for all people. For kings and those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. So the goal of the command is to love, Right? The essence of this is that Jesus came to save sinners. In the middle of chapter 1, he goes through a litany of different things that people are doing within the church body that are not pleasing to God. The first half of of the things he mentions has to deal with their sin against God. The second half has to deal with sin against people. And then he emphasizes that scripture of Christ came to save all sinners. The goal of the command is love. And then... In the midst of that love, he mentions that this is what you guys are doing that's ridiculous. And Christ came to save all those who are sinners. And he mentioned himself, of whom I'm the worst. And then he mentions in the way that we're supposed to actually be conducting ourselves. Instead of attaching ourselves to teachings that make us feel good or give us excuse to sin or give us excuses to take advantage of grace. He actually tells us that we're first of all supposed to offer petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving for all people for kings and all those in authority so these these people who are teaching these inappropriate doctrines were actually dividing the body of christ in the way that they were displaying what the gospel was supposed to be so if 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 someone who is speaking actually divides the body then that is someone who i would dare say is bordering on the line of dissension within the body of christ and they're trying to elevate themselves over christ himself so we need to watch for those things in our own hearts, not just to to where we're having to sit there and go, OK, I need to judge every single person that's standing at a, at a pulpit or talking on a microphone. And, and it's good to make sure that we are that we're we're rightly dividing the word of truth as we as we study and that we're we're able to, to make ourselves approved. I mean, that, that's that's detailed in the Bible that we're supposed to study to show ourselves approved. But at the same time, we need to also have the the ability to divide the word of truth for ourselves not just rely on individuals standing in a pulpit many people show up to church or these gatherings and and they rely on this position to give them all the information they need when we really need to be doing that on our own and in doing so you develop a relationship with god and so now this is where we we are able to see where we're at right now starting in chapter three he says this. Here's a, tr- a trustworthy saying. <laughs> I love that he starts this chapter with that. Here's a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, this part of the chapter is is important because he's going to start going over the qualifications of leadership, oversight, and uh, and direction for the church. So I love that this starts in chapter three and not in chapter one. In chapter one and two, he deals with. The body of Christ and what we're supposed to be expecting from one another within our gatherings How we're supposed to conduct our lives and now he's talking about now that we have from chapter 2 Once all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth Now that we've come to the knowledge of the truth of jesus christ in our lives that he came To die for sinners of whom we can all count ourselves as the worst because we know all the things that we've gone through in our lives And all the things or all the ways that we've missed the mark in honoring god so I can identify that in my life of all the people that I know, I am the worst of all the sinners that I know. And each one of us can say that same statement. As you know the weight of the sin that you have carried before you came to Christ. But now that you're in Christ, you now offer those things to him. And he took them as he took them on the cross and he destroyed them. So that we can have a, a light and an unburdened yoke. So that as we're walking through our life, it's we're not weighed down by the weightiness of our sin, but we know that we have been transformed by the powerful nature of Jesus Christ, his blood and his body, and then the resurrection power that he's offered. So he says this, this is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. We see the same charge in Titus 1, 7. So it means that Paul created a standard by which he encouraged this type of an overseer to be engaged in the church. Verse two, he says, now the overseer is to be above reproach faithful to his wife temperate self-controlled respectable hospitable able to teach not given to drunkenness not violent but gentle not quarrelsome not a lover of money he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect if anyone does not know how to how to manage his own family how can he take care of god's church He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. So there are six distinctions being made here. The first actually deals with marriage. So remember, he says, uh, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. That's the first thing that's mentioned there in the group of six that he says so this begs a question when we're thinking about this here so is he talking about um combating against the ideologies of polygamists from hoving oversight in their in their position uh does it go into the need of a person to be married should an overseer have to be married is that something they have to do does it exclude single people does it dismiss someone from remarrying or either death or divorce does it dismiss women from this position of leadership? So the, uh, the, the commentator of the New International Commentary of the New Testament, Philip Towner, suggests that uh, from the broader aspect of this passage as we look, it's to deal with monogamous relationships, heterosexual, monogamous union. And the reason why is because in this area specifically, there were people who practiced polygamy out the wazoo. <laughs> There were tons of people who practiced, and especially if you remember what we talked about last week with women in the ministry and, and, and women who are around this area who were dressing just, just in high, 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 uh, high, expensive clothing, all these different promiscuous things. They had in the, uh, in the pagan temples, they had women priestesses who would be dressed in provocative clothing, and they would practice things that were highly inappropriate as to worship their gods. And so that was a distinction made of why Paul was detailing specifically to Timothy in this book about why he was telling them that those women should not have a position of leadership because they were being manipulated by those who were teaching false doctrine. And in turn, they were teaching false doctrine and then enacting in some of the same practices that they would in pagan temples. Very important for us to know this information and not to be oppressive in the way that we read scripture. Another reason why we affirm women in ministry because we believe that that passage was specifically detailing a context and culture in which Timothy was living in, and not for the broad church, uh, all encompassing. But what it does teach us, while we look at that, is that there's a way that we're supposed to conduct ourselves in in maturity, in uh, in, in faithfulness to Christ, and faithfulness to a spouse, and faithfulness to Uh, to make sure that we are honorable in the way that we present ourselves. There's many things that we can learn from that depiction that gives us confidence that the word is still true and it's not oppressive and it's not contradictory either. So here we go. So this is dealing with heterosexual monogamous union together, specifically because people who are in leadership in some of these positions were practicing polygamy or they were practicing... um, inappropriate relations with other individuals outside of their own marriage. This is very important for someone who is in any kind of oversight position to be faithful to their spouse, to be faithful to their union with Christ, and it is not to downplay anybody who has gone through any other activities within their lives there. Okay, the second one, temperate. This is where the person should maintain their reason They should be sober in thought and in action. They're actually supposed to be watchful and observant of what is happening around them and balanced in their assignments. There are some people who will will give themselves over, and we'll see uh, an activity in, in this a little bit later on to where he talks about giving themselves over to drunkenness, but this is not limited to just alcoholism. I think that it's important whenever we think of someone who is temperate, who can keep their temperament, is that someone who is able to be Sober in their mind, not just from substances, but also from frivolous activities, from things that would distract them from the from the goal and from the cause and from the calling that Christ has placed on them as an overseer. This could this could detail multiple types of activities. This does not just have to deal with substances. This could deal with food. This could deal with uh, entertainment. This could deal with Uh, Other activities that will pull you away from being able to accomplish what god has called us to accomplish And so think about these own things in your lives Are you drawn away consistently from honoring god and from from spending time with him? And what are those things that are pulling your temperament away? And because certain things may engage your mind more than your relationship with christ Where you're not placing him at the seat of authority in your life What ends up happening is that whatever is sitting on, the, on what they call in, in the Jewish culture, it's like sitting on the on the seat of your heart, the place of your heart, the throne, the throne of your heart. Whatever is sitting there is going to be the thing that influences you and what you view life through. And so whatever is heavily influenced in your life is going to be the thing that you begin to live your life based off of. Which is why it was so important and valuable in the Judeo-culture for them to study as children and learn the law. They're supposed to learn the Torah. The first first five books of the Bible, they were supposed to memorize and have it like tattooed, essentially. The psalmist says tattooed on his heart. And the reason why he used heart is because that was the place, instead of thinking about, um, you know, some of the things that we know now and with, with science and neuroscience and things like that, is that this is where we think. Back in those days, they, this was the, the thinker. This was the place where they would have all of their their thoughts going through because this is like your gut feeling, right? This is where you would you would act. Your desires would be placed. This is where your passions would kind of burn. If you felt the burning desire of something, feel it right here in your gut, in your stomach, in, in your heart's place. And so they mentioned this as like, this is something that's tattooed on my heart. So this is tattooed on the, desi- the desires that I have in life is going to be based off of what the Torah teaches and not based off of, Any other burning desire that I may have for an individual, for activities, for a position, for any of that stuff, the law is the thing that's tattooed in this place in my heart. So that's the seating place of my desires. It's the throne in which I I live my life. Because how many of you guys know you can know a bunch of of information, but in the thick of circumstance, you're going with your gut most of the time, right? Like hopefully your gut will be able to have some information that your brain is— pushing information to, but ultimately your gut's making the decision, right? And so let his word be tattooed on your heart. And so this was a reason why they would they would they would study the law so much that they would make it to where they had to memorize these things because they wanted to make sure that the thing that they based their lives' activities off of was the law and was not any other kind of fairy tale or anything else that they could learn. And so think about the th- about what is actually teaching us or instructing us and how to live life, how to go through struggle, how to go through trials, how to go through um, high highs or low lows, how to go through all of these different activities. How are we basing this activity off of? What are we basing it off of? What kind of knowledge are we basing this from? Is it knowledge on what we've experienced from what we've watched on TV? Uh, has it been from multiple different types of books? What are we filtering these activities off of? So this, these individuals, and, and even in our own lives, we need to have a good temperament. A temperate when it comes to living life, sober-minded, and the ability to think and to reason and to live off of what Christ has taught us. So the third thing is self-control. This is where a person should maintain their reason. Uh, excuse me. This was a huge part of Greco-Roman culture for one to have self-control over their lives. Also, Paul mentions in a, in another book in Galatians of the fruit of the spirit, and this was the last fruit mentioned in the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control there's nine of them and i love i love that he puts them in those in those order i've mentioned this before but i'm going to mention it again just because it's so good and i just love it um if you are based in love then love will make a way for joy you cannot have self-control if you do not have love why is this because if you have self-control Then that means that you don't value and love yourself over other people. If you have no self control, that means you love and value yourself over everyone else, which means that you will undercut people, you will backstab people, you will betray others, you will do all these other things that you need to in order to get your way because you have no self control over your desires. So, love. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you also love your neighbor as yourself. You will have self control. Joy. If you have love, then you'll be able to have joy because you can have joy in the midst of any trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith will produce endurance. And endurance is a way to find completeness and wholeness in your life. You enact in perfection there. So joy. Joy in the midst of trial and circumstance, which means you can have self-control in the midst of when things are going really great, you can have self-control and not overindulge and think of yourself much higher than others. You also will have self-control in the midst of trial and won't indulge in all kinds of activities to try to make yourself feel better, knowing that the joy of the Lord is the thing that gives you strength. So if you have love, it's wonderful. Joy, awesome. Peace. If you have love and joy, then you're able to have peace because you're not so worried about your own selves and your own desires and your own activities you can actually have have peace in your life knowing that god is the one that is in control and he's the one that provides a way and he's the one that can actually bring you out of trial which is why you can have joy as well so when you have joy then you can have peace because regardless of what you go through whether if it's awesome or terrible the peace of god transcends the understanding of what's going on right now then you have love joy and peace you can now have patience you could be a very patient person because you have a lot of A lot of trust in what God is doing and not in what's going on in people. You can have patience for a circumstance, knowing that God will see you through, that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So love, joy, peace, patience. Then you can be kind. If you have patience, you can be a very kind individual. If you have no patience, you're not going to be kind, okay? DMV, you're mad at everyone, okay? Okay. Every single person. You have someone who's counting pennies at the, at the grocery store, you're not going to be so aggravated. I can have patience in my life. It's wonderful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Then, guess what? If you start exuding those things, you will also be good. You will exude goodness. Then you can also be faithful to what you're called to and the whom you're called to. Then you can also be gentle in the midst of all those things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness and then guess what self-control it's hard to have self-control without the rest of those eight fruit it doesn't mean that you have to go one by one by each of those many times you'll have a, a, a nice accompaniment of multiple of these all at the same time it's beautiful right have you guys ever snacked on it? Uh, last night, we, uh, Danielle prepared this really nice-looking like, snack tray, and we just grazed, essentially, on all the good stuff. You can individually pick up a piece of cheese and eat that piece of cheese. Or, if you really want to, you can grab a cracker, and then you can put a little bit of meat on that cracker. And then you can put a little bit of cheese on that cracker. And then, if you want to, you can even put maybe some cream cheese on top of one of those other crackers. Or you can also have some broccolis over here on the sides. You can add some of that stuff over here on this. And then guess what? You have a nice little amalgamation of some beautifully tasting individual things. And yes, wonderful. Love it. So you can enjoy the fruit of the spirit in its individuality or in a nice coupling and grouping of all of them or a few of them in whatever's going on in your life. So it doesn't have to just be, okay, I checked off love today. I checked off joy. It's a great reminder of, do I have these things? But self-control comes in the accompaniment of the rest of those things as well. And so Paul mentions that this needs to be something that anyone who is in a leadership position need to have self-control. And it's really cool if you think about that because having self-control means that you're including the rest of those gifts in there as well, those fruit of the Spirit. And so it's a reminder that in order to have self-control, we need to be able to To display all these other things that come with loving Christ and being a part of the body of Christ. So this holds true to the theological basis of the Torah's teachings and how we can look at all of this stuff. The fourth one that he mentions is to be respectable. This is also connected with self-control and it gives a total picture of what an honorable figure would look like. So we'll go back. We're ready. The, the six distinctions so far we have uh, dealing with marriage, being faithful to the one that you are that you are married to, that you are called to, being faithful to the one that you're betrothed to. Second is the temperate, being sober in your thought. Third, being having self control. Fourth, respectable. The fifth one is being hospitable. This is practiced within the entire group of the Christian body. You see this a lot of times in the Hellenistic culture um, as someone who was a householder and well-esteemed brings honor to their to their house as they're able to invite people into their house they bring honor and they they show honor by inviting people into their homestead multiple times you would see this especially in people of wealth because they had lots of space in their homestead again the the way that many of these cultures were set up was that um, someone who had a lot of, of power or a lot of money is that they also had many employees that stayed around the area So they had lots of people who would be available to help out with the things that they would need in gathering the body together. Now, this was also very important and helpful when you thought about the persecution that Christians were going through in this time. Remember, it was not popular to be a Christian um, amongst those who were being persecuted. Paul was martyred for the faith. Every one of the disciples of Christ, except for John, experienced horrendous death being executed for their belief system and who jesus was and john they tried to kill him they tried to boil him alive but it didn't work and sent him to the isle of patmos where he experienced a wonderful vision of of the glory of of heaven so you see that that this was not just some kind of Woo-hoo, have people over at your house it's gonna be great um this was more of a hey you need to invite people over not just for instruction and for teaching but also for safety because there were plenty of Christians who were traveling from one place to another. You see in James, James writes to the, to the, uh, to the Jewish church. He writes and tells them, hey, this is to the, the diaspora. This is to the people who are scattered among the nations. Not because they were just wanting to travel a bunch and just kind of see some sights. It's because they were being driven out of their households. They were being driven from their places of occupation because of the, the message that they believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and is the Messiah. And so this was not just on some happy basis. This was a very dangerous activity that even these people of great uh, respectability, if they would invite other Christians and hold Christian ceremonies within their their household, that they could be subjected to harsh persecution and not just I'm going to send a tweet out about how you're terrible. This was I'm going to kill you and we're throwing other people in jail and we're destroying your entire homestead and everything else like that. So this is a very powerful statement saying that someone who is up in this leadership position offers their life to Christ in service to the body of Christ as well. The sixth teaching that he that he gives or the sixth, sixth distinctive is teaching. So this is the only ministry skill or gift among the aspects of character that we see in Titus one nine. It tells them that they should be able to encompass instruction, discipline and correction. So these are some things that you see. Everything else is 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 based on char- the character of the individual, not on their gifting, as as a uh, as an event planner, or you know, can they do X, Y, and Z for the church? N- no, none of that stuff. It all had to deal with the character of the individual. If they were also of high high esteemed honor within the place, and uh, and they had quite a few finances, you can tell that they were probably good with their money, and they were able to help also facilitate the uh, donations. And things that were given to the church to help the body in itself. And so these were skills that they had, but the, you don't see anything about financial planning here. This was kind of an understood statement with someone who was in a position of honor, respectability, um, and, and dealing with the, their, um, their recognition within the community. These things kind of all go within itself. But this one in teaching, it's it's the only ministry skill gift among these leaders of character that we're supposed to see. And these leaders should display these attributes all in the gathering of the body of Christ. And this is important. I think the reason why this is important for an overseer is because you have someone who's like a Timothy who would be an overseer who would come in and he would deliver the message and create uh, corrective doctrine. He was able to kind of hone in and make sure that everything that was being taught is is of high value and esteem and it goes along with the with the gospel of jesus christ and this is very valuable and important for an overseer but then we go on a little bit further and we're we're going to end fairly soon he says in verse 8 in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect sincere not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus and throughout the book of, of First Timothy, if you see the distinctive um, uh, definition of the word woman, it also could be translated as wife so I think that in, in many times when when women become oppressed in this it's actually in connection and much much of this all deals with the marriage between one another so if you think about how how those who are in ministry coupled up together in this that they should both be respectable they should both have have good temperate. They should both be, have self-control. They should both have the ability to to love the body of Christ and to and to bring the activity that they need to so that the body of Christ can progress and their knowledge and love for Jesus Christ. And so I love that, that he also mentions, after after going through the litany of things for an overseer, he mentions for the deacons, the only difference that we see really from the deacons and the elders is that the deacons aren't charged with preaching from the pulpit. That's like the only thing that we see that's a little bit different from the position of the overseer. So I, there, there are many times where I've seen different um, different ministers, they hold themselves into a much higher standard of not doing activities that other people are also doing within the church because they find themselves to be too important. And that's a falsity that uh, that some people have. We, we are all called to serve one another as we serve Christ. And then in serving Christ, we serve one another. And so the only thing that an overseer will need to be able to do is to make sure that correct doctrine is being preached And that they are also able to guide and direct the body in the direction that God is calling that group of people to go into. Just like Paul is charging Timothy with. And so the elders are people who should also be able to share in teaching. Timothy was not the only one that was supposed to teach. We have multiple people here in this church who can get up and who can teach at the pulpit. But we all need to be willing to serve. We all need to be willing to to serve in some capacity, in some capacity in some way and so he said in the same way deacons are to be worthy of respect sincere not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain he mentions these same distinctives as he does with these elders to be sober-minded in all that they do to to think about what's actually being being taught and instructed to be able to to rightfully divide what's happening and to be aware of their surroundings very important and valuable they must be tested And if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women should be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. He again reminds us from chapter 2 and talking about those women who were dishonest and who were teaching false doctrines and who were dressing in a way that was provocative and silly and drawing people away from Christ and to themselves. This is where he brings this distinctive measure to again. Reminding us in the midst of people who are serving within the body that they are included. I think that's very valuable. There, there's an inclusion of women, not an exclusion of women within the ministry here. You notice this if you go if you go into um, we mentioned a few of them from last week, but in the book of Romans, the book of Acts, and then even I believe it was uh, Galatians, um, he mentions specific individuals who were either amongst the little a apostles and the uh, the deacons. They served as as helpmates and as, as wonderful um, representatives of the kingdom. You can even see this in, uh, in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. If you go back to church history, um, specifically in the Anglican um, Orthodox Anglican um, section, there's uh, on their website you can go through and find uh, her name was Fontina. And Fontina was one of the biggest evangelists that you see from the biblical era that actually did tons and tons and tons and tons of work to bring people to Christ. And so that doesn't exclude women from the ministry there. She was actually extremely valuable in showing people who Christ was. You can go throughout church history and see many different representations of women who are also very influential in making things happen throughout the body of Christ. You have Joan of Arc, a really big uh, a really big, big, name that you can see there. You go a little bit further on, um, you even see uh, Mariah Wo- Woodworth-Eder. You see uh, Amy Simple McPherson. You see um, Catherine Kuhlman. Um, t- in today's society, you see a Heidi Baker, uh, controversial in the way that she, she um, delivers messages and, and the way that she's so intimately involved with the Spirit in that way. But she, her ministry and her, um, uh, uh, the, the way that she reaches people in unreachable situations between her and her husband, powerful, extremely impactful. Um, their footprint is being left all over the world because they are desiring to see people come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. So she has a Ph.D. in systematic theology. And she is so open to the move of the Spirit that it scares many people <laughs> as, she, as she displays that in front of people when she speaks. And so we cannot denounce or deny the involvement of the entire body of Christ together, the entirety of the body. But we also must conduct ourselves in ways that are respectable, honorable, and trustworthy. Not to a standard that I set, not to a standard that Kevin McAnalty sets, not to a standard that Ken McAnalty sets, not to a standard that somebody else that you, that you uh, find is as, as highly respectable online or from some other church sets. It's from the standard that Christ set, from the standard of the, of the biblical narrative. And so in doing so, we can find that, that we are not subjected to other people's opinions. We are subjected to the cause of Christ, which his standard is much higher than what any other individual can try to place on you. We see this in Jesus' mentioning of the Sermon on the Mount as he gives his halakha, or his interpretation of the law. He says it's not just the activity of sin, it is, the, uh, it, is, it is the inner activity that leads us to sin. Not just to not commit adultery, but not to look at another person with lustful intention in your heart. Not just to stay away from murdering people, but don't have hatred in your heart towards, towards your brother. These things are important for us to recognize. If we really want to be true representatives of the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of the church, then we need to also see what these things are talking about. See what Christ is, is asking of us in these moments. What is the value for us living lives that are like this? It's high. The price is huge. But the reward is much it's not just enough to attend church. I'm glad we are all here. I, uh, you guys are all welcome at all times. And anybody else who walks in these doors, it's amazing. But we cannot just live to attend a church service on a Sunday morning. You will miss the mark. You will miss it royally. I gave an example the other day about how in uh, how when Jesus was addressing some individuals, he said, don't you know that my Father's house has many rooms in which I prepare a place for you? I love that the NIV says rooms. Other, other versions say mansions and some other things, but I love the NIV gives, gives the distinction of rooms because it invites you to the Father's house. And if you think of it, I'll end with this example right here. If you think of it, if I said, okay, everybody, after church, go to my house. And then I just walk out the door. People who are very close with me, who, who, have, who have been over to my house before, they can get there no problem. No big deal. They, are, they know where it's at. They can leave here, not talk to a person, find my house, in you go. <laughs> here we go. Awesome. Good times. Some of you guys, you may not know specifically where my house is at, but you could have my number. So you can text me, and I can send you the address. Awesome. Come on in. What's up? Come on. It's great to see you. Great to have you. Now, some of you guys may, may just know somebody who knows how to get to my house. And you're like, cool, I'm going to follow this person because I have no idea where his house is at. So you follow that person. Park in front of my house. Come over. Who are you? Not that I wouldn't know or recognize your faces, but if you just have a random person just follow someone who knows how to get there. I'm not just going to let just any random person just walk up in the house if I don't know who you are, what your name is, where you came from, what's going on. Like that's where my wife is at, that's where my daughter's at, that's where my mother-in-law's at. I don't know what, what you're about or what you're thinking about, what's going on, but you ain't getting my house. <laughs> and then you have some that they just won't ever get there because they don't they don't know anything about anybody who knows how to get there. They don't know me, they don't know how to get in contact with me. It's hard. You see, there's nothing super important or, or awesome about my house that differs it from your houses. We all have walls, we have a, a bed that you sleep in, you have a you know, maybe a kitchen, bathrooms, all that stuff. I mean, any any standard house will have these things. However, the cool thing about the invitation that you would get is the company that you would be surrounded by. That's, that's the valuable thing. Whenever you go to hang out at someone's house, you don't go because you just want to see their walls or their paint. You go there because you want to fellowship with that individual. You want to hang out with them or their family. You have Maybe you're watching a game or you're you know, just eating some food or playing video games or whatever it is that you're doing. It's the activity that you share with those people. And so the, the thing that we experience with our lives is that we have too many people who just show up to a location just because the location but not because of the one who they have a relationship with many times we look we look at you know if I just go to church you know maybe I I pray a a sinner's prayer which I won't get into that but that's a whole other thing if I just pray this prayer that gets me a ticket into paradise bam I'll be good but you go and knock on the door, like, man, I can't wait, as you're, as you're, like, as you're approaching the gates, to go see St. Peter, you're like, cool, I'm gonna go see these streets of gold, that's gonna be awesome, I can't wait to see what the we- what the weather's like over here, I bet it's really nice, oh, I can't wait to see my mansion, my mansion is gonna be dope, it's gonna be real big, everything that I've seen on, on MTV Cribs, that's what I want, I can't wait to see an angel just flying around. Do I get wings? Can I fly? If those are the things that attracts you to go to heaven, then you have lost sight of the value of that location. And you will actually not get there. The value is the one from revelation chapter four where we see all of heaven is pointed towards the throne where these four wild creatures are circling it i mean i I would be distracted by just the creatures if i was just there for the sights dude i'm trying to see all these creatures with all these eyes all around their bodies they got like eight wings per they've got like one's got a face of a person the other one's got a face of a lion the other's got a face of an ox like what the heck is this this is crazy these wild looking creatures let me look at them But those creatures are not concerned with anything else that's around there except for circling the throne of heaven, singing out holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. You have all the 24 elders who have crowns on their heads, accolades beyond belief, throwing their crowns down at the feet of Jesus, bowing and worshiping the one who is holy. the prayers and the petitions of the saints being lifted up and offered to the one who is holy he is the reason for us to experience paradise and he is the one that is a part of our lives on a daily basis but how often are we distracted by the things that are around us and not driven to the feet in the face of jesus go to prepare a place for you i go to prepare a place for you in my father's house which has many rooms are you invited to the room and in that invitation are you excited to dwell in the house of the one who is holy to be able to be with him face to face and until then are you desiring more and more intimate relationship with him so that when you go to his house you have something to communicate about are you just gonna go as a bystander hoping that you can get in the front door and have access to a, a glorious place with the presence of the one who is holy? When we look at this passage from Timothy, this is what he's calling us into. It's what Paul is drawing us to. That I cannot earn a position based on my finances. I cannot earn a place based off of my just mere merit. The things that we do needs to be to glorify God in heaven. The things that we teach need not to be self-centered, but it needs to, to humbly put ourselves down in a position where we are constantly at the feet of Jesus, at the mercy of the King. You see, in those medieval days, whenever they would bow in the presence of the King, they would put themselves in a position where they would be vulnerable for strike against their life. When you bow at the feet of someone, you are placing yourself on the floor to where whenever you are at that position, you are were, you were laid down, essentially, on the floor. From this place, I am not, I'm not at a, at a pl- pretty good spot to defend myself, nor am I in a pretty good spot to be able to hit somebody if I need to. This place, even if I get down... On my knees like this, with my head to the floor. My neck is exposed and ready for someone to strike against me if I need to. He has the guard, the king has the guard right there, ready to take an axe to your head if you needed to and, and be discarded of. But the mercy of Jesus is so amazing. His grace is so efficient that even though we deserve execution each and every time, that as we humble ourselves, He will elevate us, pardoning us of all. Accusations that we could have against our lives. And so because of that, we can now live in confidence that whenever we step into a place of calling to serve one another, that we can do so in humility and love and passion, knowing that it is Christ that I'm serving and because I love him so much, I can serve other people. This is the selfless life of a Christian. Even in the midst of persecution, we sang about that this morning. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't know that they were not going to die. They were not given some letter from heaven that they were going to be alive in the midst of the furnace. They just knew that they were honoring God in the way that they were taught, in the way that they learned. Not to bow to idols, not to give themselves and create anything else that would elevate anything or anyone else above Christ. This, this is valuable. This is important. This is how we should conduct our lives. Let's stand this morning. I want you to think through. Um, ho- I hope I hope that you're seeing the progression that's being made throughout this book, as we as we go through each and every one of these chapters and verses together. Hope you see that we're being called to more as as a church today. We're being called to more than just church attendance. We're being called to more than just gathering every single week. We're being called to more than just tithing because we feel like that's something we need to do. We're being called to more as someone who is a servant and a lover of Jesus Christ. You can give all of your money away to a really great cause, but your life is still in shambles because you have not made yourself right with God. God doesn't need your material things. He needs you. That's his requirement is you. Material things can come and go. And it's great to be able to utilize the gifts that you've been given, just like these these elders and deacons and overseers were able to do with their homes and with their financial abilities. But it's not because they had wealth that they were given the position of leadership or they were considered for anything like that. It was the character of their faith in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, that we all need to strive to be overseers of a ministry, but we all are responsible for our own lives. And in doing so, we're actually called to also serve the body of Christ. So how can you involve yourself in serving the body and serving Christ? Are we living to the standard in our own personal lives? If we're not, then we need to have some, some moments where we're considering what we're actually doing and talk to Jesus about it. Maybe talk to other people who are here to help be in accountability to you. It's very helpful to have people who can speak into your life and see things that you can't see. So I challenge you to to see those things this morning. Recognize them throughout your week. Ask the Lord to sanctify you continuously. So Father, we thank you Thank you so much for your, for your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Thank you that we can glean a lot of great information from this and learn what it means to lead well, what it means to love well, and what it means to, to humbly present ourselves to you well. Lord, let us not be dismissive or passive in our faith with you, but let us, let us be active in the way that we portray our desire to know you more and desire to represent you more to those who are around us. Let us not be drawn away by the distractions of the many things that could, that could pull us away on a day-to-day basis. Let us not be too concerned with what's going on to where we, we remove you from the place of, of focus and view throughout our days. Thank you, Lord, for, for every single person in here and for the things that they're going through, for the great and wonderful uh, positive things that are happening in, in their lives, and even in the, in the negative parts of life where, where it seems like we're going to have to practice perseverance and joy. Thank you that you don't leave us or forsake us or discard us in any way. Thank you that your grace is sufficient, your mercy is enough, that your love is overwhelming. And so anything that we could ever encounter or have encountered or desire or whatever disappointment we could have gone through, that you are there with us and you are for us. So let us hold on tight to what your word says and not be pulled and dragged away by our own desires. Backbiting, manipulating, and pulling people away. Let us truly love you with everything that we have. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys have a marvelous and wonderful Sunday. I'm excited to see you next week as well as we continue on in this series. Go have lunch with somebody and have a wonderful day.